The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 62 of the murder of my family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the case of 18-year-old Lorian Nicholson, who went missing in April 1998. As his loved ones searched for Lorian, mistakes and bad information surrounding his case would cause the truth about what happened to him to elude Lorian's family for years. And sadly, it turns out that Lorian was murdered immediately after going missing. We'll jump into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend and invite them to listen. With your help, the show can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murdermyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Joss DeRoe. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One more note before we get started. Please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family. The way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Lorian Nathaniel Nicholson was born in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th, 1979 to Sylvia Nolan. Growing up, Lorian played basketball and excelled at track at Pearl Con High School. Lorian was known as a protector of sorts for his sisters, who described him as loving and caring. He was outgoing and friendly, and known as a peaceful person. In 1996, Lorraine was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 16, and hospitalized at Nashville's Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital. But unfortunately, the treatments were unsuccessful, and fighting his illness became an uphill battle. Through it all, Lorraine battled to sustain a normal life. But in April 1998, he disappeared. Lorraine was last seen on April 12th and reported missing on April 15th. Police closed the case five days later. According to police documents, this was due to a conversation that they had with a woman named Pauline Venable. According to the police report, 
She was quoted by police as saying Lorian had returned home and was okay. As a result of her statement, police closed Lorian's missing persons case. The only problem with this was Pauline didn't know Lorian, and it's unclear why she told police what she did. On April 13, 1998, one day after Lorian went missing, a man named Michael Harville called police to report a body that was found at the dead end of the 1500 block of Mary Street in North Nashville. This call to police was placed around 8 a.m. The body had been set on fire and was still smoldering when he made the phone call to police. Michael reported that his niece found the charred body and came and got him. When police responded to the scene, they found that the body had been wrapped in a beige carpet tied with a rope popped up against the interstate embankment and set a fire. The body was burned so badly and so severely that investigators couldn't determine if the victim was male or female, black or white. Police determined that the body had been dumped there between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., and neighbors reported hearing a car leave there at around 5 a.m. Metro Medical Examiner Dr. Bruce Levi, upon completing an examination of the body, said the victim appeared to be a black male in his 20s. The initial autopsy showed he was most likely dead before being set on fire, but due to the condition of the body, Dr. Levi was unable to determine a cause of death and ruled it pending. Police later put out an official statement that described the victim as being a black male age 18 to 25, about 5 foot 11, and weighing about 150 or 160 pounds. He was wearing a pullover shirt, a maroon CPO zipper style jacket, with YKK on it, blue jeans, and sandals. The area where the body had been found was known for criminal activity. It sits at the bottom of what was Interstate 265, and now known as I-65, at the end of Mary Street. The road is about a block long, and the area was often frequented by drug users and sex workers. It was also the perfect location to dump a body, because noise from the vehicles on the interstate above would have drowned out any cries for help or other sounds related to the crime. Police were not able to identify the victim, and he was buried officially as John Doe 19 in Bordeaux Cemetery in May 1998. It's unclear why Nashville police didn't make the connection between Lorian Nicholson and John Doe 19. Remember, police had not yet been told by Pauline Venable that Lorian was safe at home until a few days after this body was found. Lorian should have been on police radar and perhaps the first to come to mind following the discovery of this body. And since police could not ID the man, he became the 19th unidentified man buried at Bordeaux Cemetery, hence the John Doe 19 name given to him. The small stone that marked his grave simply read, John Doe 19. Meanwhile, Lorraine's family and friends continued to search for him. They never were told of John Doe 19 buried in Bordeaux Cemetery and they didn't know that Pauline Venable had told police that Lorian was home safe, so they thought police were still looking for Lorian. Once they found out about Lorian being incorrectly reported as safe, and that police were no longer looking for Lorian, and hadn't been for a while, they knew it wouldn't be easy to find him, and they had to start looking all over. They began searching mental hospitals in various states, fearing that Lorian, due to schizophrenia, had been hospitalized someplace. For a while, his family believed Lorian might be in a hospital in Kentucky, and they pursued that angle, but it ultimately proved to be incorrect. For 15 long years, 
Lorian's sister Candace searched for her brother, all the time unaware of the John Doe found on April 13, 1998. She got the idea to start searching the NamUs database, NamUs being short for the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. In 2012, she found an entry on NamUs for John Doe 19. Then she noticed that the body had been found only one day after Lorian went missing. Based on the description of the body, she got a strong feeling that she may have at long last found her brother. Candace made a few phone calls and scheduled an appointment to obtain a DNA sample. In March 2013, authorities contacted Lorian's family and told them that the body in Bordeaux Cemetery, given the name John Doe 19, was actually Lorian. The search, in some respects, was finally over. After the identification was made, the stone that was marked John Doe 19 was replaced with a marker that had Lorian's name engraved on it. Lorian's family now knew where he was, but they didn't know who killed him and why, and who threw his body out like a piece of trash. Police reopened the investigation, this time as a murder instead of a missing persons case. In 2013, Investigators traveled to Cedar Rapids, Iowa to follow up on a lead, but it led nowhere. Last year, a relation of the Ryans presented the police with new theories on what may have happened to him, and it remains to be seen if that information will lead to Lorian's killer or killers. As of now, the person or persons who took Lorian's life remain at large. Candace, through her search for Lorian, never gave up hope, and kept digging trying to find the truth about where her brother was. She was able to do what many amateur sleuths dream of doing, solving a mystery, at least in part. She still wants to know the rest of the story. Candace sat down with me to discuss Lorian's case and her efforts to find and get justice for him. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Candace, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your brother Lorian's case with us. Hi, Mike. It's nice to be speaking with you as well. You've been searching for answers in, in your brother's murder for 22 years now. How difficult has that journey to get those answers been for you and your family? Oh, it's been terrible for me. Um, I, I go through a slew of emotions, you know, from day to day. Um, it's caused depression at some point um, just with the not knowing for so many years when um, this happened I was 18 so if you can imagine going through your formative years from being a teenager into an adult and dealing with this type of stress or you know from not knowing where your brother is and what could be possibly going on with him or what could have happened to him. Um, it's just been horrific is the word that I would use. You mentioned you're, you're 18. That's when you're supposed to be starting your adult life and getting jobs and settling down and, and that kind of stuff. And instead you have this tragedy happen to you that you get bogged down with for, for years now. And, mm -hmm. and it's, I'm sure that, it's been some, something that's weighed on you that you want to know the answer to. Has it been sort of mm -hmm. tough to live your everyday life and, and do normal stuff, but also take on your brother's case the way you have? It has. It's like um, some days 
like even when I think back on my early adulthood, you know, some days I, I would be fine um, and try to block it out because I didn't have the answers. The only thing that that I was told at that point was that he was in a mental institution. So that kind of held me back from panicking, maybe, um, because I, I was under the impression that he was safe, but not being able to speak with him was hard for me. But when it always came around to his birthday, um, which is in October, that was always a really hard month for me because I, I wasn't able to, to talk with him. I wasn't able to know that he was okay. And I didn't have really have any answers or anywhere to go to get answers. So it, it always came down to around his birthday when it would get really tough for me. And that's when the depression would set in and it, I would start searching for him, if that makes sense, trying to find out exactly where he was, if he was anywhere at that point. It came to this, really, we found out that he was murdered. So, but it was, it was really hard during those years of not, not really knowing, but suspecting that something was, wasn't right. Were you and your brother pretty close? We were. We didn't live together because he was my stepbrother. Um, but, you know, in, in my community, we don't really use stepbrother or half-brother. It's always just brother or sister. But um, we went to school together since eighth grade. So um, we were always close at school, and he would always come by my house because um, we didn't live far from each other. I lived with my grandmother. She raised me. And um, he was always into sports and, you know, I would try to support him in that and, and go to track meets and things of that nature. And um, but at school, he was my protector, you know, so there was because he was in sports and he was well known, you know, no one could mess with his little sister. <laughs> he was just that type of person. So if, if I had any issues at school, I could always go to him. And, um, you know, that would alleviate any problems if anyone was bothering me or, you know, he was very protective in that way. Could you tell us a little bit about him, what kind of uh, person he was, some of your uh, favorite memories of him, maybe? Um, he was very, he was very intelligent. He was very athletic. He was very funny he he was always cracking jokes and you know just silly at some time and he was someone that I looked up to he wasn't very much older than me he was less than a year older than me but he was someone that I looked up to I've known him since I was eight so um he was always my big brother you know, and you always idolize your older siblings. So I remember when we were younger and he would take us to the park and we were kind of in a rough neighborhood. So, you know, kids weren't that friendly. And, um, you know, if anyone bothered us, he would always come to our defense. That's just the type of person that he was. You know, he never started 
a fight with anyone, but he would not deal with anyone getting bullied or pushed over or anything. At that point, he would stand up for for anyone in that position. So he was definitely a defender of his little sisters. You mentioned he was a really gifted athlete in, in school uh, and spent a lot of time with sports. But your family noticed changes in him, I, I take it, in high school, and, and he was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia. How challenging was that diagnosis for him uh, and, and your family? And did it change anything as far as his daily routine or lifestyle or anything along those lines? Well, that was later on um, in our high school years. He he disappeared for a while um, because, as I stated, we didn't live together. So I wasn't really um, informed on where he had gone to. But um, later I found out that he had gone to, what is it called, to not boot camp, but to where you, what is it called, where you go to um, get your GED. It's like a juvenile camp. But, yeah, he had gone there, and he had disappeared for a while. And then when he came back, he was just different. And and later on, um, right before he disappeared, that's when he was in um, Vanderbilt Psychiatric Hospital is where I knew him to be because he called me from there a couple of times. And I, it was strange because he was very... Like I said, he was very in- intelligent. He could, you could always grasp where he was coming from speaking with him, and he was very good with words. But when I spoke with him over the phone, it was like I, I couldn't gather and piece together what he was trying to tell me. It was like he was going from one thought to another, and it, it wasn't really making sense. So that's when I knew that something just wasn't right. And I wasn't really sure. I was I was young. I, I hadn't heard of schizophrenia before. Um I wasn't sure. He didn't tell me that's what he was di- he was diagnosed with. And it was kind of scary for me, you know, knowing that from the person that I knew him to be and it was like he was no longer that person anymore. So it was very hard for me um, listening and not being able to comprehend what he was trying to tell me. Um, I didn't know if he was being held against his will. Um, I didn't know if he was truly sick or if there was something else going on. It was just, I had a lot of questions at that point. Once he was diagnosed, was he put on medication and uh, did he take that on a regular basis and, and just... Uh, live his uh, normal life and do his normal activities? Well, from what I've gathered, um, because again, we did, we did not live together. So I, I didn't see him on a regular basis once he was no longer in school. But from, from what I've gathered, he wasn't taking the medication that he was supposed to be taking. Um, and that's just based on the missing persons report that he was off his medication. So um, that would explain now the reason that, you know, I couldn't make sense of, of what he was telling me. Um, the very last time that I saw him, he had came to my home that I lived with with my grandmother, and 
he asked, could he live with us? And my grandmother, she's a strong woman. You know, she raised all of her grandkids and there was, there was no room. There was no room for, for him there. And I had to tell him that, and it broke my heart to, to do that. Um, but she, she just didn't have the room. We were in a two bedroom duplex with more than six people living there. So there was no room for me to say, okay, yeah, you can stay here. And that was the absolute last time that I saw him. But, you know, looking back on it, if I would have known that this would have been the outcome, then I would have just snuck him in, snuck him in some kind of way, you know, after after she went to bed or, or something of that nature and just let him sleep. Yeah. And you know, go somewhere else during the day. But he he was he was really different from, from what I had known him to be since I was a little girl. Um, his thoughts were all over the place and he seemed frightened to me. So I don't I don't know what it was that he was running away from or who or what was going on with him. I don't, I don't know if it was in his mind. I mean, evidently he had some, some basis to be afraid because of what happened to him. But at that point we had no idea, you know, what was going on with him because we didn't know if it was in, in his head or if it was a true legitimate fear or danger to him. So, that make that makes sense, and uh, a lot of times people with that see things or experiencing things that aren't necessarily true. But in his case, because of what happened, you almost have to wonder if if perhaps he had some kind of reason to to be afraid. Um, right. T- take us back to April twelfth, nineteen ninety eight. He was reported missing officially. Um, was he reported missing by you or another family member? He was reported missing by his mother and also by his uncle. Um, if you have a copy of the missing persons report, it lists Johnny as his brother, but it's actually his uncle. And and how did they know something was wrong and that he was definitely missing? Well, that's a difficult one um, because I can only go by the missing persons report because we were initially not aware that he was missing. So um, just going by the missing persons report, that's what I've gathered is that he hadn't been home in a few days and they were saying that he hadn't taken his medication and that he was, um, known to do um, to abuse substances, which later we found out wasn't the case. But um, from what I've gathered from researching, it's just that he had not come home, and that his mother, his, his mother, um, we don't have, we don't share the same mother, so his mother was worried about him because he hadn't returned home. And it's crazy that April 12th is when they say that he went missing. And that's the day after my birthday, the day after my 18th birthday. 
So you mentioned earlier when your birthday comes around, that's when you really start thinking about them. That makes sense. Yeah, now it's my birthday as well as his birthday, which is in October, oh. October 6th. So um, so now my birthday has a, you know, a bad stain on it because I think, you know, just two days later is when my brother was murdered. Mm. So it's hard for me to celebrate and be let that be a joyous occasion because I'm always thinking about him and I don't have the answers that I'm so desperately searching for. Had he ever gone missing before it just popped out for a couple of days and then popped back in, or was this something that wasn't ordinary for him to do? Well, in high school is where we spent most of our time together. He, he was never really, absent because he was a he was a very good student he was like I said he was highly intelligent he was a great athlete I've spoken to his coaches and everyone loved him like he was always present and um for him to just go missing and not communicate you know because we talked even though we didn't live together we talked he would call me and we would talk on the phone. He would come by and see me. We would sit on the porch and, you know, talk about things and laugh. And, <laughs> you know, just it was just a normal brother and sister relationship. But he would always keep in contact and check up on me. So the fact that he would just disappear is not anything that he would do. And, and somehow that missing persons report was filed, but then unknown to your family at the time, someone else who wasn't a family member, I take it if I'm not mistaken, reported to police that Lorraine was safe at home. So therefore the police canceled the missing persons file on your brother. Can you explain how or why that happened? Well, I like I said, I've been working on this for for years now. And I did recently track down the officer that closed the missing persons report. And I, I got mis, kind of misinformation from him. Because from what we have is there's a supplemental report, which is like an addendum to the missing persons report, which says that they spoke with a female. Um, which I don't know if you want to include her name or not, but they spoke with a female older elderly lady that said that he was returned home and he was okay. It's not really documented as to how they came about speaking with her, whether she called in or if they called her, but it was, um, it was validated that, they did not go to the home, the address that was given, which was not the address that was listed on the missing persons report. And they did not go to any of the addresses that were given to verify that he was alive. And um, from what that officer said, which was just a couple months ago that I spoke with him, um, he said that there should have been an activity sheet that listed his actions and why he would close the report. And from what I've gathered 
speaking with other police officers is that um, activity sheets are only done by officers in the field, like um, traffic officers or um, officers that are dispatched around the city. So a desk officer or homicide or missing persons officer would not complete an activity sheet. That's not something that they would do. So it's kind of mixed up information that we've been given, but um, there was no explanation as to why they would close the report based on the word of someone who wasn't even listed in the missing persons report. Now, I do know that the name that was given, this this woman is now deceased and she was um, disabled is what I was told. She was disabled mentally and physically. And um, she was a friend of Lorian's mother is what I've been told. So somehow this mistake, I guess is the best way to describe it happens. The, the missing persons uh, search is canceled. The police don't go verify that your brother's okay. They just say, okay, we got a report. He's okay. Let's just cancel this. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. as that's going on, you think that they're still searching for him and your family's awaiting news on him. But the day after he went missing, the body of a man was found in, in the Nashville area. That body had been wrapped in a carpet and set on fire. That body matched the description of your brother. But at the time, the police didn't think it was your brother. They didn't at least alert your family. Is that correct? Well, uh, it goes a little deeper than that. Okay, so the police missing persons report was filed on the 15th, stating that the last time that he was seen was on April 12th. The body was discovered on April 13th. Well, they didn't, when they did the missing persons report, they didn't pull up any unidentified victims. Um, Because, again, this was on the 15th. The body was discovered on the 13th. They didn't cross-reference anything at that point. Then on the 16th, this is what we were told after we found out that, you know, that was indeed my brother. There was a, a bad tornado, I think, on the 16th, 15th and 16th or the 16th and 17th. But there was a bad tornado that ripped through Tennessee and all of the resources were used towards the tornado. So that's why, that was the excuse that we were given as to why no officer went out to the address to confirm if he was really there was because all of the resources were used towards the tornado efforts um, with what was going on behind that. So... No, they did not do their due diligence with working the missing person's report or case and cross-referencing anything in their system regarding the the homicide that victim that was unidentified with the missing person's report. Yeah, because you would think that there would have been something that they might have been able to get off that body as far as fingerprints or uh, dental records or something uh, that they could maybe make an identification, but instead they buried that body sort of in a uh, 
like an unmarked grave. Yes, uh, a pauper still. The body is buried there, and obviously we later would find out that that was your brother. But meanwhile, you're still under the impression he's missing, and mm-hmm. you're thinking he's in mental hospitals someplace and, and trying to find out where he's at. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't until 2012 that NamUs uh, determined that the body found 14 years earlier, back in 1998, was actually the remains of your brother. How shocked were you to get that news and find out that your brother had actually been found dead? That broke my heart. You know, um, like I said, every year around his birthday, me and his sister would, um, which is my little sister, um, we would try and find pieces or piece together any information that we could get. We contacted a homicide detective um, that worked missing persons as well. And that's how we found out about the missing persons report. We didn't have any idea that a missing persons report had been filed because we were, again, always told that he was in a mental institution in Kentucky. We had called, um, obtained his social from his father and called around to different hospitals in Kentucky, Lexington, um, just any state, any city that you can think of, we would call and try and get information. But that's when the HIPAA laws kind of became prevalent and it was hard to get information. I mean, it was to the point where we would literally be crying on the phone saying, please, can you just say yes or no? You know? And um, one night, and then this was in October. I stayed up all night just searching the internet. And I came across the NamUs website. And it was so simple. It was so simple to just enter a, a time frame, like a date, and the age range, the gender, and the race of someone and I got a match with only two hits. It only had two bodies. And one of them, I said, that has to be him. And, you know, I didn't want it to be. I I did not want it to be. But in my mind, I knew that it was him. And so I, I called my sister the next morning because when this happens, when I go on these searches and it's like I get into a manic state and I stay up and I can't sleep. So this was, you know, way in the wee hours of the morning. So I waited until the next morning and called her and she called the medical examiner. And that's when we set up to have the DNA test done. Um, This wasn't anything that was found out by the police. They weren't doing. They weren't doing their due diligence. They weren't doing the work. We had to do the work for them, and um, and it ended up being him. And it it just broke my heart. I had you know I was staying up all night searching the internet, trying to find out what I could, and going to work the next morning. And when I got the call, I was at work, and I just broke down. 
I just broke down crying. So it was actually you uh, going on there and, and finding this and saying, I think that's my brother. And and you mm-hmm. st- sort of started that ball rolling to, for them to find out that it actually was. Yes, sir. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's exactly what happened. And, and yes, had sir. you not done that, who knows if that would have ever been done. Um, he he might not have ever been identified. Yes, and which is baffling to me. Like, if there was some site out here that any peon could use, why couldn't the police use the same site to try and get us information? Like, I contacted, there was a story on our local news, Channel 5, that stated that there were, I believe, 21 unidentified bodies in the morgue. And I had sent that story to one of the detectives that were supposedly working the case and asked that they find out if one of those were my brother, which, of course, they weren't because he was already buried in the poppers field. But it's like we could not get any help. when, And I... I don't want to make this about race. I don't want to make this about about that. But I don't think that he mattered to anyone, the fact that he was missing. And I do believe because it was from due to the fact of the area that we were from and the fact that he was a young black male. Like I I really it's, I really uh, do believe that. It's and that's a difficult thing to talk about but i think we know that to be true in many cases there's uh, no denying that that sometimes you know if it's a a young white girl that is missing from a well-to-do family a lot of media outlets will just jump all over that and make it a front page story um mm-hmm. so, so i don't i don't think you're far off on that possibly playing a role in, in this and on top of that, you've got the confusion. You've got the person that's saying that uh, that he's actually home. Um, and had you not gone down this road and, and done that work yourself, uh, it, it's just amazing that you did that and you were able to find him. Something really, I hope you're proud of that because that's really something that you should be proud of. So you've got, you, you go from, uh, you're heartbroken. Now you know he's he's not in a hospital. He's not missing he's he's dead and someone killed him Uh, so now you go to the shock of that did you have did your family or anyone that knew him have any idea of who might have done this to him or 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 why not at all because he had so many friends you know he was just one of those guys you know that everyone likes (laughs) you know it's just some people that have that charisma about themselves that they don't really have any enemies and everyone just gravitates towards him. He was one of those type of people. Like I, I wasn't, I can tell you now when I was in high school, I was shy. I was reserved. I was, you know, always on the defense just because I had a lot of things going on with me, but even though he had a lot of stuff going on, he he didn't project that, you know? He was just very welcoming. He was very lively. He was very charismatic. He was just great to be around. So 
he he was the worst possible person for something like this to happen to. Like it, it's a, it comes to a shock to everyone that I speak with about him, from the coaches to the teachers to to his friends. Like no one could imagine that someone would want to harm him at all. Was there an official cause of death for him? I have the autopsy report here. It says that he was burned post-mortem on the report here, and it says no definitive anatomic cause of death was identified due to the extensive post-mortem fire damage. And the cause of death was unknown, but basically from what we were told, it was blunt force trauma. So someone attacked him and then disposed of his body and just tossed him out like a, a piece of trash. Oh, yes, which is so devastating. That's horrible. After all this time, all these years have gone by, it it seems like there's no movement in the case. Are are you still in touch with the police? Are they still actively investigating? Are they um, updating you as to what they're doing now? Well, as of last year, because I reached out to several people, um, because after the identification of the body um the detectives that were working the case one of them retired just out of the blue and um it seemed to be at a standstill so last what is this 2020 so in 2019 the end of 2018 beginning of 2019 then I reached out and was able to get the case reopened. And it is supposedly being actively worked. So I've been in contact with a detective um, working the case, um, which we don't really have any any leads that I'm aware of. Yeah, it's not really going anywhere because it's so old, you know? And if you don't have witnesses or other key evidence, uh, then there's not a lot to go on, unfortunately. Um, right. So you're, you're, you've processed, you've had a lot to process, obviously, all these years and, and all these ups and downs and, and finally finding out um, what happened. Does it give you, obviously, it, it won't bring your brother back, but does it give you any kind of peace knowing that he's found that he's not in a hospital someplace that you don't know about or just missing out on the street someplace? Do you, does it give you any kind of uh, peace of mind to know that you know what happened to him and where he is? You know, I go back and forth with that a lot. Um, and half of me wishes that he was, somewhere that's safe, you know, and me not knowing sometimes is better than knowing that he suffered the way that he did because him being missing still gives you hope, you know, that you can find them, that they would return home, that you know, they would be able to carry on and and live life. So I I can't say that this brings me any sort of comfort at all. 
No. At the end of the day, you, you still don't have your brother. You don't know who did this to him. There's still a lot of unanswered questions I can only imagine or, or, or ones that you're still asking yourself all the time. Exactly. Yeah. I know you've been very proactive. You've been out there. You've done interviews. I know you worked with uh, Olivia Lind, a, a podcast friend of mine who hosts a, a couple podcasts, Flat Rock and Something's Not Right. She's local to the Nashville area and she took an interest in, in the case. Do you plan to keep at it and, and keeping it out there front and center so people don't forget about uh, Lorian and, and his case? Oh, yes, most definitely. I'm, I'm never going to stop with this until, you know, either I'm dead or we get a resolve in the case. So, you know, I have my moments where I try and clear my mind and not think about it so much because it consumes me to the point where that's all I can think about. And, and I, I don't sleep and I get anxiety about it and it, it just consumes me. And then other times that's all that, that I can do. And, you know, I may go on rants on Facebook and, and just, you know, people may may think that I'm going above and beyond, but it's my brother, you know? So there's no way that I can let this lie the way that it is. And I, I still wish that there was some way that we could hold Nashville PD accountable for their, their lack of due diligence and their inept police work. You know, I wish there was some way that they could hold some of the blame for it because had they done what police are supposed to do, then we wouldn't be in the situation that we are in now. Had they put the pieces together when this occurred, then maybe they would have more evidence. Maybe they would have witnesses. Maybe they would have a lead instead of trying to catch up and, and solve it 20 something years later, they, they might exactly. have had a better shot back then. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm never going to stop. That's not anything that, that I have said in my mind, like whatever I can do to bring awareness to this and bring attention to it. Like the, the way that he was, where he was found, and the way that this happened, and I, I even went so far as to get the original um, police report from when the body was found. Like, people heard a car. They could have seen what type of car it was. Like, some of the information that I have is redacted, so I can't really see all of the information, but someone knows something. So all it's going to take is for me to wear someone down. So I'm going to continue my efforts and continue posting and reaching out to people like you um, to bring awareness to this case and the injustice that I feel was done, not only by the police department, but by whomever committed this horrific crime to my brother. So there, there's just not any way that I'm going to ever stop. 
and I hope you uh, keep up the good fight and keep going. Again, it's very uh, inspirational to know that you actually, in, in some sort of, some sense, you solved part of the case by just identifying your own brother in, in the NamUs uh, database, which is very impressive. And and I think Lorian would be uh, very proud of you for for what you've done to to keep his case out there. And, I really uh, hope so. I, I hope you have success. I hope maybe uh, you're able to uncover more ground and, and, you know, find the answers that, that you're waiting for. Oh, thank you. I really hope so. And I, that's one, one of my wishes and one of my dreams is that he knows how much he was loved and how hard we are fighting to find and get justice for him. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. Please, if you have information about the murder of Lorian Nicholson, contact the Nashville Homicide Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit at 615-862-7329. Special thanks goes out to Olivia Lynn, who hosts the podcast Flat Rock and Something's Not Right. She reached out to me and introduced me to Candace to cover Lorian's case. Thanks also goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody 